For the week of Thursday, March 7th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talked to gun control activist Igor Volsky about his new book, Guns Down, which lays out his strategy of putting the focus on gun manufacturers, dealers, and the NRA as a way to address and mitigate gun violence in America. In Volsky's assessment, it's working. The trend, both in terms of public opinion, but also in terms of gun ownership, which is plummeting, is moving towards this idea of fewer guns. And, you know, what we need to be talking about is how do we expedite that movement so we could save as many lives as possible in the process. Then our week in review, we talk about Jay Inslee's now official 2020 presidential bid, about Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill, and we talk about a move in the state legislature to call a constitutional convention in an effort to overturn Citizens United. We will also have our weekly call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. Last week, the Democratic House passed H.R. 8, which would mandate universal background checks for every gun sold in America. But the bill will likely never become law because of Republican opposition in the Senate and the White House, meaning there is still a long way to go on the gun issue. My guest, Igor Volsky, says in his new book, Guns Down, that the way to finally free ourselves from gun violence in America is to go after the real problem, gun manufacturers, gun dealers, and most of all, the gun lobby. Volsky is the founder and director of Guns Down America. He is a frequent guest on cable news, and his work on gun control has appeared in USA Today and U.S. News and World Report. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. And he joins us now. Igor Volsky, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to start by talking about how you came to prominence in the gun debate. So you were working as a reporter for Think Progress when the shootings in San Bernardino happened in late 2015. And you used social media to respond to that in a very specific way. Uh, Tell us about that. So, uh, yeah, the shooting in San Bernardino was a real turning point. Uh, And I, uh, on that day, December 2nd, 2015, uh, was working at Think Progress. I was a video producer. I was producing videos on all kinds of different issues. I'd heard about the shooting that day. It was actually the 366th shooting of 2015. God. Uh, I I was obviously, you know, as disappointed uh, as, as anybody. But at the end of the day, I got back to my computer and I saw on my tweet deck lawmakers sending their thoughts and prayers. Now, they do this after every mass shooting, so Mm. it's not terribly surprising. But what really caught my eye was those same lawmakers were the ones who voted against background checks uh, in the aftermath of the Newtown shooting in January of 2013. Uh, But they also spread lies about what that bill would do. And it just struck me as so disingenuous to kind of pull the wool over the eyes of your constituents and the American people and to somehow suggest to them that you care about the issue when really, when you had a chance to actually do something about it, you showed that you didn't. Um, And so something inside me really just broke. And in the book, I try to diagnose exactly why that is, but it struck me as just so fundamentally wrong and so fundamentally corrupt. And so I spent the next eight hours 
tweeting out how much every single thoughts and prayers lawmakers, lawmaker, how much they got from the NRA. And I made the argument that the reason why they only think and they only pray and they don't act is because of that money and what that money represents. And, mm-hmm. you know, that argument resonated with a lot of people. And it really, I think, provided me with a platform to do this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, it was enormously effective. You gained tens of thousands of Twitter followers. You said that they were they were coming in uh, dozens at a time, uh, you know, per yeah. hour. You know, you, you said that when you were working at Think Progress that um, you weren't working specifically on the gun issue and that when this happened, specifically uh, San Bernardino, you say that something broke. And I, I'm wondering, was that the point where you decided this is something that you wanted to take up full time as an activist? You know, I think that point came after all of these tweets, after they provided me with a platform to get into the rooms where decisions were made, where decision makers in the movement were figuring out strategy. And what I saw in those rooms, frankly, were a lot of great organizations that were focused on how do we and what kind of progress can we make in this Congress or in the next Congress. But there was no Nobody really thinking about what is our long-term goal? What are we fighting for? Mm. And what I saw at that moment was an opportunity to really fill a void, to lay out and clearly articulate what our goal should be as a movement. For me, that's building a future with fewer guns and also laying out a strategy for how to get there. So while the tweets really provided me with an opportunity to really think about this issue, to interrogate this issue from different directions, what I think really gave me the sense of, oh, there's a value add that I can have that currently doesn't exist was really my recognition of what I thought was missing from the gun control movement. Well, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you talk about filling a void and and mm-hmm. I think your strategy and particularly your outcome um, is unique in the gun uh, debate. And I want to get into that in a second. But before we do, um, I want to talk about the opening of your book. So when you were researching your book, you actually went to a weekend training in the desert uh, to learn how to shoot a handgun. And you write about how the trainers, they're really amped up people's fear and telling people how dangerous our country is and that it's not a matter of if but when they're going to need to defend themselves with a gun. Um, were you surprised by that? I was very surprised, mostly because I was told that this particular training center really rejected the extremism of the National Rifle Association. I was told that at this center, you had people who really had martial values and really saw guns as these important tools to protect themselves and their families, but didn't really subscribe to a lot of the conservative identity politics that are often associated with the NRA. And so I was expecting really folks who were just like really into guns and, you know, Mm. really wanted to shoot guns and didn't really have the kind of political agenda that we're familiar with. And, you know, as you know, once I actually got there and once I spent 
two days uh, shooting handguns, which, by the way, I got to say, is incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult. Yeah, you talk about how there are all these different steps that you have to to yeah. manage in your mind. There's like nine different steps uh, every time you uh, you go to pull the trigger. So yeah, yeah, it was really tough. And you know, I talk about in the book how uh, this was a training center in the desert, and I didn't even think about like, oh, what what do you have to wear for that kind of stuff? So I was just <laughs> literally dressed in my like city garb. I had these bright red sneakers on. Um, so I was getting all kinds of looks from people. But, you know, what I encountered there, frankly, were, were the same kind of people, uh, you know, certainly, I guess some of them, maybe not all of them, but the folks I encountered and the folks that I spoke to really shared the same kind of extremist um, uh, ideology that the NRA puts forward. They share the same kind of paranoia about everybody coming to take away your guns. And so while I was hoping to find these magical folks who, who, who didn't insert political identity into gun ownership, what I actually discovered was more of the same. And I, I suppose it's a big leap, but can we extrapolate then if these people were supposed to be the so-called gun moderates that yeah. uh, these attitudes among gun owners in America are pretty pervasive? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm really of, of two minds on this. Um, part of what we do know, right, from public opinion polling is that the overwhelming majority of gun owners actually support a lot of the things that That's I right. talk about in the book, right? Yeah. NRA um, uh, supporters, uh, by and large, support universal background checks, for example. Yeah, or even things like gun licensing. I mean, you know, after, um, as I write in the book, after I spent two difficult days in the desert shooting <laughs> handguns, uh, I had an opportunity to have dinner with uh, one of the individuals who ran that particular center. And I asked him, you know, what do you think about federal gun licensing, right? Which is a system that really builds on universal background checks and says, hey, if you're going to, uh, if you want to have a gun, you should go to your local police station. You should get fingerprinted. You should, yes, do that background check, but also have a written test, have a field test, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be a waiting period for you to obtain a gun. Uh, you know, the states that have those kinds of systems have seen dramatic decreases in both homicide and suicide. So they really work. So I asked them, uh, why wouldn't you support that? Isn't that the very definition right. of responsible gun ownership? And he really shocked me when he said that, yes, he would back such a thing. But the but the reason why he wouldn't say so publicly and the reason why so many of his gun owning friends wouldn't say that publicly is because of the political clout and power of the NRA. Right. Uh, and that's why I argue that it's the lobby that's the problem, not gun owners themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really do want to drill down into that because I think that is a central thesis of your book. But I do want to touch on. The difference, and it may be a semantic difference to some, but it, it let's talk about the difference between gun control as opposed to gun safety. Um, where does the difference lie ultimately for you? Guns are inher inherently dangerous. Guns are dangerous in anybody's hand. That's why we have, you know, 22,000 suicides every year. That's why we have 14,000 homicides every single year in the United States. They are designed to kill. 
right? So, so they're they're know, not safe by very definition. By their very definition, by their very inherent design. And of course, you know, because the gun industry is almost entirely unregulated, they produce unsafe products all the time. So I think it's a little um, misleading to talk about gun safety because what that suggests in my mind is, well, let me back up and say, can guns be used safely? Yes, they absolutely can be used safely. That's not what I'm disputing. What I'm disputing is this notion that um, we, the, the kind of conversation we've been having for the last 20 years that there are uh, people who know how to responsibly use guns and then there are these dangerous people who we need to ensure that they don't have access to firearms. The problem with that kind of narrative, and it's a narrative that I think the movement has used for the last 20, 25 years, is that folks don't walk around with dangerous persons stamped on their forehead, mm. that there's really no way of knowing who's dangerous and who's not. And of course, when you look at our humongous suicide rate, that kind of throws that theory out, out of the window as well. So the argument that I make Rather than trying to divide people into two camps of dangerous and not dangerous, what we should be arguing is that firearms themselves are inherently dangerous. And if you choose to own a firearm, you should jump through several multiple hoops to get that firearm to prove to yourself, to your family, to your community, that you can actually use that firearm responsibly. I want to raise the floor for what it means to be a gun owner in this country. And, you know, what I found when I was shooting guns in the desert and what I find in my travels now when I talk to gun owners is that they don't have a problem with that. And so what I'm trying to do is really change the conversation and change the, how we talk about this issue, um, because I think that's where real progress can be made. And I think that leads logically into from the sort of personal gun ownership into the political and as you've talked about already, the main thesis of your book is that uh, ultimately the way to get to the root of the problem is to go after the manufacturers, the dealers, and certainly the NRA. And I really want to get into them in a second. But, yep. you know, Congress, as we mentioned at the top of the, the of our interview, they're needed to pass laws. And even though uh, the vast majority of people really do support so-called common sense laws, it's still considered uh, a political impossibility. So it's a very big question, but I'm going to throw it to you. How do you see us getting gun laws passed in this country, given the political climate? Well, let me be very clear that I believe that there's a very large gap between where the politicians stand on this issue and where most Americans are. That's true for things like background checks. That's true for bolder policies like gun licensing and registration, gun buybacks, gun waiting periods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a matter of you know, if we were, if this was an issue where we really had to go out and really like build support amongst the American public and we really had to make the case for why our approach is right, then I would agree with you. I would say, my goodness, it's a real uphill climb. You know, um, how are we going to do this? I don't know. Let's, you know, devise multiple strategies. But on this issue, where the American public is already there, 
The question then becomes, how do you close the gap between where Americans are and between where our politicians, even champions of this issue are? There's a gap. That's what that's what I would like to explore. And that's where you can think about creative ways of organizing mass opinion on this issue and channeling their support for it into advocacy that pushes our lawmakers and our champions towards where most folks are. That's the kind of work that I do with Guns Down America, the organization I run. That's you know the kind of work that my colleagues do. But you know, I think if anything, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that in the post-Parkland world, there has been a change in political calculation. And there has been this sense among politicians, among corporations, among other actors in society, that Americans are fed up with this national crisis, that the trend, both in terms of public opinion, but also in terms of gun ownership, which is plummeting, is moving towards this idea of fewer guns. And you know what we need to be talking about is how do we expedite that movement so we could save as many lives as possible in the mm. process. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I think you're you're right. There There is this uh, perplexing gap between what citizens and politicians ultimately want, but it is starting to narrow. And part of the reason why, I think, is because you're you're starting to see the NRA lose ground. And they've been very, very skillful at driving the media narrative. Uh, around this issue. So for decades, uh, we've been following this very specific narrative about how gun owners are patriotic Americans who are just exercising their rights. Guns aren't the problem. Uh, We live in a culture of violence that uh, only a good guy uh, with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. So that seems to be one of the the key strategies that we're talking about here is starting to shift that narrative. So give us an idea as activists how we can start to, to shift that narrative effectively. So, like, for instance, right before we started this conversation, I saw on Twitter uh, Kamala Harris uh, tweeting uh, about how uh, we need to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. I saw that framework. I recognized it as the kind of narrative that the NRA has been advancing really since 1911. You know, one of the things that I learned in this book is that the first argument the NRA made against a gun control law was a 1911 law in New York, and that their narrative that they used there is completely recognizable and almost unchanged, you know, this, I can't do the math, but this many years later, that they say the same thing today that they said back then. And for reasons I'm happy to get into, at a certain point, even more progressive lawmakers began to adopt that kind of framework and began to play on the NRA's turf when it comes to talking about this issue. So anyway, so I recognize this this framework. I immediately tweeted out, I don't understand why Kamala's point about guns in the hands of dangerous people. I said guns are inherently dangerous in any hands. Just look at the, you know, again, 22,000 people who died from suicides, 14,000 who died from homicides. We demand a future with fewer guns because guns are the problem, right. not not this this division of people. So one thing folks can do that's really, really easy is they can 
um, go ahead and, and do that when they see that kind of language. They can write to the leaders who are hoping to, you know, be president in 2020 and say, hey, get with the program, change the way you talk about this issue, um, because, you know, the, the the middle has really shifted and catch up to where we are. Um, and of course, the other thing folks can do, and this is really the focus of, of my, uh, of the organization that I head up, um, is I think while Certainly, there's a lot of energy spent on legislative change on the federal level, as there should be. Uh, that's incredibly important. Um, I do think there's also a lot of space to push corporations to lead on this issue in a major way. And a lot of the campaigns that we're going to be um, unveiling in, in the coming weeks and months are really going to focus on answering the question of, well, what can I do? I already have two blue senators. I call them every day. They say they agree with me. What can I do? I think that pushing corporations to do the right thing, particularly corporations that continue to finance the gun industry, um, is a way that folks can really plug into weaken that industry to weaken its political cloud and capital hill and begin to make real progress, not just culturally and in the corporate world, but also um, in, in federal policymaking as well. Yeah, your group has been enormously successful so far in pushing back against corporations. And of course, as you say, pushing back against the narrative. One of the things that you point out, and this is something that's always kind of buzzed around my head, uh, is that the gun lobby and the NRA exist chiefly to sell more guns. So I think this is something yeah. that we can also push as a narrative point. Um, one of the things that you talk about uh, pretty extensively in the book is how we currently read the Second Amendment. Uh, your book offers a solid history. And by the way, I highly recommend the book. But I'd just love to go over a, a couple of points with you because I think you explain things very well. Uh, and I'll just read the text as it exists. Uh, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. So, Depending on who you ask there, this either guarantees an individual the right to bear arms or it refers only to ownership for the sake of being in a militia. Um, in, in the book, you break down a few of the key phrases. So let's translate a couple. Uh, talk about what, uh, in your read, the Founding Fathers, or ultimately uh, under Madison, was meant by a well-regulated militia. Well, the the idea of a well-regulated militia was really rooted in this fear of a centralized power or a centralized army undermining the security of, of a free state. Uh, that was really the center of the debate at the, at the convention. What is the correct balance of power between a federal government and the states? And so in the context of the conversations that they were having, that's really what that dealt with. And of course, the, um, the, the gist of the Second Amendment was designed to convey the idea that within the context of a militia, individuals should be armed to protect their communities. And that that really celebrated the 
the virtues of a, of a citizen soldier within the context, again, of a militia to protect their communities from threats, either that are coming from a central government, which was a fear at the, at the time, Man. from outside forces or, of course, from indigenous populations, which, of course, as we know, through the history of the United States, guns were used to to suppress all kinds of uprisings and, of course, also to to hold uh, slaves in check. So this is to say that the founders' understanding of gun ownership was really rooted in the sense of a militia not in this notion of an individual right to carry a gun. Uh, and I also point out in the book that there are t there were tons of early colonies that had all kinds of different restrictions on gun ownership, right. uh, restrictions that I, as a gun control advocate, would fully support. Um, and part of that is because, you know, guns are inherently dangerous today. They were inherently dangerous then. The, our founding fathers and, Amer and colonial Americans recognized that, uh, and they uh, adopted the necessary rules and the necessary laws. And I will also say that that kind of understanding really uh, won the day and, and held true and was the kind of really almost unanimous read of the Second Amendment until the 1970s. Right. And that actually leads yep. into our discussion about the NRA, um, it, because you point out that the NRA started as kind of a, a hobbyist group after the Civil War, and they've evolved into an organization that, as I mentioned earlier, exists almost exclusively to drive uh, gun sales. And so let's do talk about moving them forward to the 1970s, where the NRA shifted the Second Amendment to mean the right of individuals to talk about uh, guns. Uh, talk about that evolution. Well, let me just let me just say that while certainly the NRA started uh, as kind of a hobbyist uh, organization that that tried to teach marksmanship, that even in its early history, before the 1970s, they were fairly, um, I will say, radical when it came to uh, expanding access to guns and that they did um, maybe while publicly having this image of, oh, we are just gun hobbyists, we are collectors, we are we are, we are we are hunters. We do sports uh, shooting. That was their public stance until the 1970s. That underneath that public layer, there was always this sense of, um, uh, you know, a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. Right. That was always true. What changed in the 1970s are two different things. One is you had a power shift within the NRA after 1977 that brought to power a group of individuals who believed they could use the Second Amendment and the right within the Second Amendment to help advance that guns everywhere and for everyone agenda. And that's incredibly important because before that happened, the NRA was putting out um, information that basically said that the Second Amendment was of no use to them in advancing that kind of agenda. That changed. And so what they did is they really spent 
uh, a whole ton of money to create an entirely new field of scholarship. Well, not entirely new, but almost, almost entirely new field of scholarship that put forth this idea that, again, was incredibly radical in, in the 1970s that argued that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protected an individual's right to own and carry a firearm. That broke with decades of Supreme Court precedent. That broke with almost all of the state interpretations um, of, of, of this uh, and really created a new field of scholarships. And, and I believe in, in, in the book, I point out that before this switch, if you analyze all of the scholarship on the Second Amendment, almost all of the scholarship said that the, the right to, to own a gun was this collective right within the context of a militia. Right. After the NRA changed its leadership and changed its approach, they uh, invested in all kinds of different scholars to put forward the alternate view that no, it actually protected the rights of the individual. And in the succeeding years, the balance really flipped and of course culminated uh, in the 2008 uh, Heller decision in right. the Supreme Court, which for the first time overturned centuries uh, of of, um, of Supreme Court precedent and found uh, an individual right. Well, I just have to say that was extraordinary. You managed to uh, go through the entire history of the NRA uh, from its inception all the way to 2008. So uh, extraordinarily well done. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what your organization does to disempower the NRA. This is uh, your organization is called Guns Down. It is uh, the same name as your book. Um, one of the things that you do is to create campaigns that urge corporations to break ties with the NRA. You touched on this a little bit earlier. Talk about how. Are, are, is it through boycotts? Is it social media pressure? Well, so it really depends. It really depends on who the target of, uh, of our campaign is, what we're asking that target to do. And the tactics can really vary. Everything from social media pressure to on the ground um, efforts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think what's important, though, is the recognition uh, of two things. One is why are corporate campaigns important? I think they're important because you can, as I as I've said, make progress on this issue faster and actually achieve, I think, a degree of cultural change through the corporate route at a faster pace than it would take to do so legislatively. So, you know, in the marriage context, for instance, we saw the court of the Supreme Court follow uh, a lot of corporations who, who adopted inclusive policies. Sure. Um, I mean, that I actually think, speaks to how corporations really uh, hold primacy in our culture in many ways. That's absolutely true. And I think what's what's true about corporations and guns in, in 2019, and I think it will become even, even more so moving forward, is they have this real sense that I think really broke through after Parkland that, as I've been saying, the trend is shifting, that the public opinion has shifted, that it's no longer acceptable for a company to invest in the NRA or to invest in the gun industry, that individuals who uh, who are customers see that as such an, um, uh, as, as, as really... Um, it's toxic. Uh, 
it's toxic, right? It's incongruent with the values of an individual consumer. And I think that, and that's certainly true for, for young consumers. And I think corporations really have finally recognized that. And that's why after Parkland, you saw dozens of companies break ties with the NRA. Um, And so, you know, a lot of our work is really focused on how do you push these companies to do the right thing, right? How do you make a case to them that it's really in their business interest to move in the right direction on this issue? And we do that in all kinds of ways, both working with those companies, but also publicly pressuring those companies, both on social media, as I said, on the ground, uh, and of course, from from key constituencies in the movement, both survivors and students and faith leaders, etc., to to keep on pushing them uh, in in the right direction. Well, you know, something else that you do, your group does, is to address the threat of armed uh, intimidators at polling places in and you did this in 2016 and in 2018. Um, those of us who live in blue districts and blue states may not be aware of this practice. Um, tell us about it and how Guns Down has addressed it. Well, you know, we were worried both in the 2016 election and then again in the midterms that the rhetoric that was coming out of the the president uh, was really toxic, that he was warning people about voter intimidation and suppression, and he was suggesting that people needed to to bring – to be very vigilant. And so we worried that there would be sections of his base that would – would bring firearms to polling places. Um, And in the United States, laws around this are really a tapestry. It really depends on the state of whether or not you can bring a firearm to a polling place. Some of it depends on what kind of polling place is it? Is it a school? Is it a community center? Um, But also, you know, general, the general guidelines really varied. And so we ran uh, these two campaigns uh, with with two different goals. One was to educate people that this may be a threat, uh, that you may, you, you may see this. And if you do, we wanted to empower people. And so we worked with um, an election protection organization uh, to um, create a channel that if folks see armed intimidation in the polls, uh, because intimidation of any sort is illegal at a polling place, armed or not, um, that they can report this to uh, to, to election protection, uh, and then the folks there would deal with it in, you know, in a way that meets the, the level of, of the threat and would kind of figure out what's going on. Um, and for us, that was, that was, it was important for two reasons, right? One, we wanted to secure voters, and two, we wanted to shine a real spotlight at how broken our gun laws really are. That yeah. the, the fact that there's no national standard, that somebody could just bring a gun to a polling place and really push some people away from exercising their constitutional right to vote. Yeah, I mean, it is it really is jaw dropping that this happens in 2019. But uh, but here we are. So I I think you're aware that you are speaking now to listeners who are highly motivated, progressive activists. So what can people do? I mean, obviously, pick up your book, but how can people get involved with your organization, Guns Down? 
Well, you know, I would, of course, encourage folks to pre-order uh, the Guns Down book. It comes out uh, on April 9th. Uh, and I would also note that we are very close uh, at Guns Down America to launching a major uh, corporate-focused campaign uh, that's going to be launching later this month that's really going to answer this question of what can I do? What can I do to help? And so I would encourage folks to go to gunsdownamerica.org. Uh, there'll be more information on the site once we launch that campaign. They can sign up for the email list where, of course, we will be alerting folks um, to that effort uh, as soon as it starts. And then also um, this spring, starting in April, we are embarking on a 20-city tour where we're going to be holding town halls all across the country uh, that are going to plug folks into this campaign that we're going to launch, develop real advocacy plans about what they can do in their communities, in their states, on the federal level to make progress on this issue, and of course, to keep the issue at the forefront of the 2020 conversation and push all of the 30,000 people who are running for president in 2020 to change the way they talk about this issue. So uh, they can they can come meet me on the road. Uh, they can go to gunsdownamerica.org. Uh, and of course, please follow me on, on social media as well, at Igor Volsky or at Guns Down America. And I will have all that information available for people at the website at indivisiblepodcast.org. Just one last question. You know, um, talking through this, it really does feel still like an uphill battle, Um, you know, going up against the political forces, NRA, gun manufacturers. Um, You seem hopeful. Should we be hopeful? Oh, I absolutely think we should all be hopeful. I think we should all be hopeful given the incredible outburst of energy that we saw in the aftermath of Parkland, given the fact that all of the latest data shows that, as one pollster called it, the gun issue is this generation's 9-11. The fact that young people across the country are coming into politics for the very first time, and gun issue is really their entry point into it. So I envision in the not too distant future, a change in the way politicians, A, talk about guns, in the way they prioritize this issue. Um, and given the way the NRA has been, has been he- the direction they've been headed in with lower revenues from membership, with lower um, gun sales, with, uh, you know, a, a very low uh, or really some of the lowest in their history approval ratings, yeah. I there is no doubt in my mind that we are going to win this battle. Again, the question is, how quickly can we do it and how many lives can we save? It's going to be a lot of hard work, uh, but we are now, we, we've now woken up to this crisis. We know how to solve it because frankly, the, the policies we are, we're talking about and, and promoting have worked in the rest of the world. They work in the states that have them on the state basis. We need to federalize that approach um, and really begin building a future with fewer guns because a future with fewer guns is a future with safer communities. Absolutely. Well, uh, your leadership on this is greatly appreciated. Igor Volsky is the founder and director of Guns Down, and his book, also called Guns Down, is available on April 9th. You can pre-order it now. Igor Volsky, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
And next, we will turn to our week in review. We talked this week with Indivisible Washington's 8th District founder, Chris Petzold. Hello, my friend. Hey there. And we also have our friend Summer Stinson joining us this week. She is the president of the State Education Advocacy Group, Washington's Paramount Duty. Summer, welcome. Hello. All right, you guys. So um, a lot to cover this week. So I, I vote that we just jump right in. So as you both know, our Governor Jay Inslee officially threw his hat into the presidential ring for 2020. Uh, Chris, I know that you mentioned watching him on Maddow. Uh, this was his first TV appearance as a presidential candidate. How do you think he did? I, I think he did awesome. I was actually, I'm not sure why, but I was actually really surprised. I guess since I have met him several times, um, I, I didn't think that I would be that, you know, excited about it. But I, I was actually, the way she laid out his history um, and the fact that, you know, and I didn't know this, in his past, he'd lost his congressional seat because in 1994, due to his uh, vote for the assault weapons ban, the yeah. Brady Bill, um, and the fact that he said on the show the other night, it was the right vote then and it was the right vote now. I mean, that was just super uh, impress, impressing to me. I really, I really thought he did a great job. Yeah, I loved that. And in fact, that Brady Bill vote uh, made me think of that story about Obama pushing for the ACA and some advisors telling him that it might make him a one-term president and Obama apparently saying something like, if that's the cost of doing the right thing, then so be it. So it's nice yeah. when a politician actually does something on principle. Uh, we use more of that. Um, Summer, yeah. um, Inslee, as we know, is absolutely running as the climate candidate. Uh, how do you feel he's going to do as basically a one-issue candidate, or I guess another way to put it is, as he laid out on Maddow, do you agree that the climate issue encompasses everything from health care to jobs to immigration? Oh, I absolutely agree that uh, environment and climate should be looked at holistically. I mean, that is the course, and that's the core of the Green New Deal. It absolutely touches jobs, the um, our affordability livability, um, ability to make connections with each other, as well as um, medical and then uh, economic issues. All of those are tied up together and they're extremely important. What I do get concerned about is that sometimes it seems that Inslee is only asked about the environment and that is the issue that many reporters or people want to focus on. And, you know, I'm an appellate lawyer. And so when I go in front of the Ninth Circuit, I would love if they all gave me, all the judges gave me softball questions (laughs) that if I could ever be so lucky. And so I, I just don't want Inslee to escape other questions and hard questioning on all of these other issues that definitely do touch and there's a strong interplay with the environment. Well, yeah, I mean, he seems like he really wants to have those discussions if his conversation with Rachel Maddow was any uh, indication. But I guess maybe I'm playing into the hands of the narrative by uh, asking this question, Chris. But I mean, it is important, really. I mean, right now, OK, so he's pulling at less than one uh, percent. So, you know, he's just barely on the map right now. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a, a name that's as fun to say as Hickenlooper or Buttigieg. Um, but uh, he's not <laughs> getting the national recognition just yet. So right now, the thing that he is known for is climate. Um, are we confident or hopeful that he is going to shift the Democratic platform and make climate the priority that it should be? Chris, what do you think? Yeah, if he doesn't get some kind of uh, position 
out of this, either the presidency or vice presidency or EPA or something like that, um, it, I think he will still win because I think he's going to shift the conver conversation. Just like Bernie raised our consciousness to the possibility of Medicare for all yeah. in the 2016 cycle, I think uh, Inslee is doing this uh, with climate change. And uh, honestly, I just couldn't be more proud um, as a Washingtonian that he's doing that because it is an emergency. Yeah, it's probably the most existentially pressing emergency that we have. And, you know, of course, you mentioned Medicare for All, and we're going to get to that uh, in just a little mm -hmm. bit. But, you know, climate is not a new focus for Inslee. Uh, he co-wrote a book about it in 2007 about how to create a clean energy economy. So this is something that he's been pushing for for a while. That said, I do think that it's fair to look at his track record here in the state. He has been a very vocal supporter of climate reform, of course. He's pushed for a lot, but he hasn't gotten as much done as I know he would like to have gotten done. For example, most recently, he couldn't shepherd uh, I-1631 past the fossil, fossil fuel interests. Um, Summer, I also know that you have some thoughts on his record around capital gains. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I think looking at uh, taxes generally, we in Washington state have the most upside down regressive tax code in the entire country. And while when Inslee first came into office, he had to deal with um, divided government between the Senate being controlled by Republicans and then the House being controlled by Democrats. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was the one in May 2017 when there was divided government who took capital gains, which would have only targeted the top 2% of our households here in Washington state and made us a little less regressive. He took that off the table. And then in December 2017, when by then we had flipped control of the Senate, so both the House and the Senate were under Democratic control by December 2017, he uh, did not propose a capital gains tax in his budget. Instead, he proposed a one-time funding for public schools, which was great, but that one-time funding put now, because it's not being renewed, two-thirds of Washington school districts into crisis. And we are still here pushing for capital gains tax for our most wealthy uh, households and to try to climb our way out of the 50th rank in terms of tax codes, which unfortunately looks a little bit more like our national tax code that I'm sure Inslee would be fighting against. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's what's concerning is if here in Washington state we have two democratically controlled um, parts of the legislature, and yet he's still not able to get um, some of his initiative, you know, his ideas for either the environment, um, for a carbon tax, or for capital gains through, then I am concerned about how he's going to fare on a national stage or it, were he to ever get it in the White House. Yeah, it's a mixed mm -hmm. record. Um, you know, certainly I know that you and I on the program have talked about the McCleary ruling, which basically mandated a $1 billion investment that had to happen. And that was in, in large part, as you say, because of the divided government. But also it's fallen to the, you know, fallen on the backs of, of you know, property owners to to make up the shortfall here. And I, I, I think you make a compelling case that some of that can be laid at uh, Inslee's feet. Chris, do you have any thoughts generally about uh, Inslee's track record as governor on this or any other subject? I am very concerned about those same tax issues. Um, and I was actually concerned about his support of, of that environmental bill this last time. Um, I, I feel like the 
the the carbon tax is actually quite regressive as well. Um, and so, you know, I don't I don't think it's perfect by any means. Yeah. Well, one thing that I will say uh, in doing my research about him is that uh, he has said that he is for getting rid of the filibuster and he is for statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, two items that are actually very high on my list for any Democrat uh, and uh, his or her initial actions once in the White House. So those are good things. Yes, those are very good things. So we'll just leave that there and shift over to the other most uh, pressing existential issue facing us domestically, and that is health care. So. Last week, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal rolled out a Medicare for All proposal as its lead sponsor. This bill would move every American onto a single public insurance provider within two years with vision, dental, and long-term care included. There would be no out-of-pocket costs, but uh, prescription drugs would be subsidized. This is a landmark bill in that it is the first single-payer bill to be introduced in the new Democratic House, and it already has 107 co-sponsors. So, Chris, give us your thoughts. Um, Do you feel like this is the sort of bill that we fought for and hope to see from uh, a Democratic House? Yes, this is exactly what I fought for. And I was working so hard to flip the house because, I mean, I came when I started working to uh, for the 2018 midterms uh, last year, that was coming off of a year uh, fought uh, trying to save the ACA from being repealed by Trump. Um, And so uh, this is exactly what I had in mind when I was working so hard to flip the house. I'm hoping that my congresswoman, Kim Schreier, will get on board with Medicare for all. We've seen, you know, how health care has become such an important issue um, and our health system is just so incredibly screwed up. I mean, just last night I was at a, a meeting with my Democrats group and um, my my legislative district and one of our um, meeting attendees, an older woman, um, fell in the parking lot and oh, wow. actually really injured herself last mm. night. And there was oh. blood coming down her face. Um, mm. And we were all, you know, hovering around her trying to figure out what to do. And her main concern was how expensive an ambulance would be. And she needed oh. to go to this specific healthcare facility because that was where she had coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And so, Our most vulnerable people, the older people, the young people, they're, you know, they're, we need to take care of them. And uh, last night just put this in perfect uh, relief, uh, the problem that we have. Um, And, you know, we need to get this fixed. And so I, I am renewed in my fight to get my congresswoman on board with Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, I think it really is unconscionable, the, the fact that we are asking our most vulnerable uh, members of our society, as you say, to, to have to basically jump through flaming hoops in order to get some semblance of treatment. And oftentimes the treatment isn't even that good. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it is a challenge. And I, I, I do respect respect the fact that I think it's a challenge for, um, you know, representatives in purple districts um, getting behind something like this. I think they feel that it makes them vulnerable. I'm not saying that that means that we shouldn't push. I think we absolutely should. But I get the I get the politics at play. And that said, there are a few other incremental proposals currently floating around the Senate. Um, Debbie Stabenow and Tammy Baldwin have a plan that would allow people to opt into Medicare starting at age 50. Uh, Brian Schatz of Hawaii reposed a Medicaid expansion as part of a state-based buy-in. Samra, what are your thoughts on these more incremental plans versus Jayapal's Medicare for All plan? 
Well, first, I have to say I'm so extraordinarily proud and pleased with my Congresswoman, Congresswoman Jayapal's health care for all bill. Um, I've been an um, employment and labor lawyer and in HR for over 20 years now. And the fact that we have a system where if you have a very good job, you have health care, that it's tied to your employment is also unconscionable because it really means that we make the gap between the haves and the have nots even bigger and that we are saying basically you have to have employment. So I get really concerned with incremental approaches here because while it's very important for people over 50 to have um, Medicare, I don't want to limit it to that. I think that everyone should have health care. And that just is an absolute for me. And then the concern with the state buy-in is right now people feel sometimes locked into jobs or into marriages that um, they would like to possibly exit because of health care. Mm-hmm. And I also would like people to be able to move from state to state and not have to think if their disabled child will still get the resources they need if they move to a different state. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, you I think you're hearing in terms of the opposition is the price tag. There's an estimated 30 trillion dollar cost to this, which depends depends on who you ask. But um, I feel the need to point out that we already pay twice what other countries pay for health care. Right. And we have worse <laughs> yes. outcomes, according to a 2018 piece in Reuters. And I also want to point out that if we're not paying in taxes, we are paying in increased insurance costs, in ridiculous premiums, um, also through costs that get passed along when people can't afford insurance through no fault of their own. And then they use emergency care as their medical care, and then they're unable to pay. And then, of course, not to mention the fact that people die every year due to being uninsured or underinsured. So we're already paying. So we can either pay with this, you know, pay for this with a tax, ideally taxing the top earners or corporations. Or, uh, as Republicans have recently demonstrated with their latest tax bill, we could just deficit spend. Um, no there, kidding. Yeah. Stuck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are a million ways, but we're already paying for this as a country. So there. Yes, uh, we yeah, are. Off my soapbox. Um, I, I, will, um, I, I will point out that a uh, recent Henry J. Kaiser poll showed that Americans now favor a public option 57 to 37. And that's actually almost flip-flopped from a similar poll in 2000. So that said, I will ask, given everything that we've just talked about here, do either of you fear that proposals like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal play into Trump's 2020 platform, which is to freak out moderate voters by calling these plans socialism uh, and will therefore hurt our chances in 2020. Chris, thoughts there? Nope, I'm not afraid because I believe the Republicans called Obamacare socialism too. That's just their buzzword. Um, we, yeah, there were going to be death panels have, too, right? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, that's just their normal thing that they say. And uh, this is a recognition that healthcare is a human right and our system is messed up. And if you want to call that socialism, that's okay. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to be brave and assertive because they're going to come after us yeah. anyway, no matter what we do. Yeah. I mean, exactly. that I think is actually a very interesting point about this. You know, when I was talking about uh, the uh, the Debbie Stabenow and Tammy Baldwin opt in for you know Medicare at the age at age fifty, and then Chats's Medicaid expansion, um, these are things that were considered socialism by uh, Republicans. But thanks to the Overton window being opened a little bit more because of uh, Jaya Paul's Medicare for All, um, that's changed, and those are now considered mm-hmm. to be the reasonable uh, approaches. Um, Summer, do you fear? 
uh, the the S word, socialism, uh, in reference to uh, Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal, et cetera? Not at all. I mean, Social Security was one of the original programs that uh, really is a good example of what some would call democratic socialism. What it's truly about is investment in the public good. And you notice that Trump goes after not just health care and Medicare for all, but he also even goes after public schools. And so does his son um, and his and his administration, you know, to the point where they call teachers, I believe, loser teachers. Yeah, that was so Donald really Jr. What they're, saying that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, what they're trying to put on trial here, if you will, is really our investments in our public good. And we have dialed those back to a scary, scary low amount. And we absolutely need to start investing in people. And we need to inspire people to show up, show up in this campaign and show up at, at voting time. And I think what we have shown is that when if, if the Democrats can't offer real solutions and those are going to be bold solutions and Republicans will put them down, then we're not going to be able to inspire people to get out to vote. But when bold solutions are on the table, people jump in to help and talk about it and amplify the message. Yeah. And messaging is so, so key here. And Chris, I'll actually throw you a curveball and just kind of ask you in terms of the way that you as an indivisible leader are going to be approaching the 2020 election. Messaging is a big part of this. We absolutely need to get out in front of these you know, Republican attacks and say precisely what Summer just said, that really, ultimately, we are about uh, the, the greater good. We are about yeah. creating uh, a better society for ourselves. Um, we know what we believe, but how do we message that in your mind? I think we just get back to the values and stop stop repeating. We need to stop repeating their labels um, and we just get back to the values uh, that we have. And that is we think, you know, everyone should be able to have access to affordable quality health care. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's just it. I mean, whatever you want to call that, that's OK. But uh, we need to stop repeating their labels for one and then just get back to our values. Yeah, absolutely. All right, you guys. Well, so one last item this week. Um, As many listeners have been hearing, there is currently a bill in the state Senate calling for a constitutional convention under Article 5 of the Constitution that would propose a, quote, free and fair elections amendment to the Constitution. This bill is sponsored by Democrats, and it has moved out of committee uh, to be voted on by the full Senate. Uh, The stated reason would be to introduce an amendment that would effectively overturn Citizens United, because the only other other way that that's going to happen would be to have the Supreme Court overturn its own decision. That's not going to happen. So that's the argument for. The argument against is that the Koch brothers have been angling to have this very sort of constitutional convention for the sake of being able to wreak all kinds of havoc with the Constitution. They need only 34 states. They are six short of that. Once one is convened, there's really no governing body to stop the proceedings because conventions can write their own rules. Because I think it's uh, fair to point out the only time we've ever had one is the original Constitutional Congress, and that wrote the rules that govern where we are right now. So on one hand, we would have the possibility of reflecting the will of the people and overturning Citizens United. But on the other hand, a constitutional convention could result in all kinds of unforeseen Republican havoc on our Constitution. So, Summer, as the uh, single lawyer uh, among the three of us, I'm going to let you weigh in here first. Where do you stand? Is is uh, run at Citizens United worth the risk here? 
Well, I, th I think there's two issues here. There's the, the policy or the value, which is the investment in the public good and getting back to a return of public financing of our presidential campaigns and also state and local. Yeah. That's, we all agree on that. Then there's strategy. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the two strategies I've heard talked about are either the Constitutional Convention or looking at if we can, as Democrats, gain power um, at the White House back in 2020, especially if we can also uh, flip the Senate, then what do we do look at for the Supreme Court? Because uh, the fact that there's nine is not... Uh, etched in stone. Yeah, it's not forever. codified in the in the constitution. Exactly. So we can exactly. expand. And so so I think that there's a couple strategies at play, but I think what you've hit upon is that any strategy we use could at one day possibly be turned against us. I think my concern here is that this one could be more quickly turned against us, a constitutional convention. Mm -hmm. um, could be I don't think we're in the right place quite yet to use this strategy. I want to overturn Citizens United as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. I am a bit hesitant of this strategy, but I am so glad that we're thinking about strategies and putting them on the table and actually working towards solutions for to figure out how to put our value into play here. Chris, what are your thoughts? I just don't, I don't think it's worth the risk here. Um, I'm the first one that wants to see Citizens United overturned. But, um, you know, listen, there's there's a reason why the last time we did this was in 1787. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> this is a big deal. Um, some of the agenda items on the Koch brothers and the Mercers uh, for, for this uh, constitutional con convention are to outlaw federal debt. Uh, stopping regulation of interstate commerce. Um, one good thing, um, imposing term limits in the Senate, which I'm also a fan of. Um, and uh, get this one, no taxes on gifts or estates. Um, so you know where they're coming from there. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I like, as, as Summer was saying, uh, this is not the right strategy. It's the right thing uh, to do is to overturn that stupid decision. Uh, but this, no way. Yeah. No way. And um, I think it's interesting that uh, the right has been pushing for this for all those reasons I just uh, mentioned. But um, now they I don't know, maybe they even orchestrated this this push from the left to get the rest of the states and boom, there we are. So I am hmm. actually really worried about this. Yeah, that thought did actually cross my mind and it made me mm -hmm. even more nervous. Um, you know, like the term limits for senators, notwithstanding, they're uh, there, there's not an awful lot to recommend uh, the Koch's intentions on all of this. And ultimately, as we've said, you know, I would just be nervous about the possibility of rewriting the rules um, and leaving open in a convention setting the fact that the rules could continue to be uh, rewritten. It's just to me. It's, there are just so many unknowns. Anyway, so, so let's work hard to get the White House in 2020 and um, change the change the dynamic that way. Yep. And get the Senate, too. Absolutely. Perfect yes. last word on that. All right, you guys. Yes. Thank you so much, Chris Petzold. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Summer Stinson. Thank you all. And as per usual, we will close out with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is the research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and we will get our calls to action. Hello, Stephen. 
Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Good. So um, let's start by talking about something that we haven't talked about for a couple of weeks, and that is Trump's fake national emergency. Um, you know, the news cycle under Trump is really something, isn't it? Like, it, I was just thinking in past administrations, this would have dominated for weeks and maybe even like led to impeachment hearings for abuse of power. And I mean, well, it, it might eventually if we throw it on the pile with all the other stuff. So um, where are we with Trump's fake national emergency? Uh, you and I talked about about H.J. Uh, Resolution 46, which would end it. And that cleared the House. And it's looking like there may be enough votes for it to clear the Senate, right? Exactly right. Um, listeners may recall there's a time limit on this one. So Mitch McConnell's not going to be able to bury it. It has to come to a floor vote, I think, by the 16th of March. And since the Senate's going on recess, um, there'll have to be a floor vote by the 15th of March. And he'll probably want to put it off to the last minute, but mm. I'm not sure about the timing. Four uh, senators, four Republican senators, um, have come out uh, formally in, in opposition. So it's guaranteed, well, if, if they hold true to their word, um, then this resolution should get fi- at least 51 um, votes, which would, uh, would, allow, would allow it to pass and go to the president's desk for signature or perhaps more likely um, a veto. Now, what will be interesting to see on this one is how many more uh, Republicans join these four, if any. Um, I, Rand Paul the other day said that he thinks uh, as many as six, possibly even as many as 10 um, wow. Republicans might end up voting against it. Now, I, I would I don't know too much about Rand Paul or how he how well he whips the vote. I would be amazed if uh, 10 voted against it. Um, I did see something in CNN this morning that uh, had names of six um, Republican senators, uh, actually six other Republican senators, who could potentially vote against it. Um, and, and as the article was saying, you know, the fact that this is almost the fact that these Republicans would be willing to buck the president on something that, that has virtually no chance of being upheld um, says a lot about how, how strongly they might feel about it. So in my mind, anyway, um, the call to action certainly would be to make sure that Senators uh, Murray and Cantwell um, vote uh, in favor of the resolution to, to oppose the national emergency and um, encourage them to uh, persuade as many of their Republican colleagues as they can yeah. to, to vote against it as well. It would be really good to see six to ten Republicans vote against it as well as all the Democrats. Yeah, agreed across the board. And, you know, before we move on from this, um, I will just mention that this is potentially Trump's very first veto. And I'll just ask for your personal take here. Talk about the ramifications in your mind of Trump vetoing something in order to skirt the constitutional separation of powers. Yeah, it really is. Um, boy, discouraging is not even the right word. I don't, I don't know what the right uh, the, the right adjective is, but it, it really is it, it kind of as you were saying it to be uh, earlier, uh, Stefan, that um, in any other administration, um, this would probably be, uh, you know, the middle of the news cycle forever. And we just haven't right. even heard about it uh, for days. Um, th- this would be uh, his first veto. And I think we can expect to see a lot more vetoes now that the um, Democrats um, can pass some bills and the Republicans are going to go along with some of them. But, but what folks need to remember is that this goes to the heart of the Constitution. It says right in Article 1 that Congress can, 
controls the purse strings. If sure. Congress allocates how money is spent, and then the president executes what what Congress passes. And so he is just very clearly going around Article One of the Constitution. And like you were saying, you know, this is just unconstitutional on its face, and everybody's okay with that. Yeah, well, I, I suppose we'll see what happens with the courts. There are expected court challenges coming, so we'll keep an eye on that. All right, so... Staying with the Senate for uh, a moment, let's move on and talk about Internet privacy. And, you know, pushing for this in 2019 is kind of a Sisyphean task. Uh, But let's just go ahead and go there. So uh, right now, the latest challenge is the fact that the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation met with tech lobbyists to draft legislation on Internet privacy without any public input, which is kind of like um, I'm searching here, uh, like letting foxes legislate for the hen house. Um, First, is this really right? Is this really how they this happened? As near as I can read, that is the way it looks to me. There, there were congressional hearings. They did invite in all the uh, business interests who were interested in, you know, getting internet or, or you know, maintaining the, the lack of internet protections. And for some reason, the Republicans weren't interested in hearing both sides of the story and didn't invite in any um, experts on uh, privacy protections or, or you know, citizens. Um, to testify on what the impacts to them would be. So they only got half the story at their most uh, recent um, committee hearings, which I think were, you know, a week or three ago. Well, and Maria Cantwell sits on that Commerce Committee. So what can we ask her to do here? Yeah, fortunately, this is a new uh, committee assignment for her. So we've we've got uh, actually a, a couple of avenues here. The one the one that we would ask folks to uh, undertake this week is um, to give Senator Cantwell a call and let her know that we're quite um, taken aback, that we're quite disappointed that uh, her committee would would only hear one side of the story. And we would strongly encourage her to work with the committee chairman, whose name escapes me at the moment, to um, hold another set of hearings to get the other side of the story. So definitely um, give her a call, ask her to hear, have more hearings with with a more balanced set of witnesses. Now, I did read something in the news today, and so there, there may be a follow-up we can do next week. Um, it looks like both the House and the Senate um, might be proposing bills to... Um, to, I think the title of the bill is Save the Internet or something to, to that effect. Hmm. Um, so we'll have to see what that bill is, and then there may be a, an action on that um, you know, in the, in the near future. Obviously, it, something like that is a lot more likely to pass the House, um, and we'd be amazed to get a floor vote in the Senate. But we would certainly hope that um, Senator Cantwell would be able to at least get a hearing uh, for that bill, and um, that that'll be another opportunity for Democrats to send a message that, well, under a Democratic administration and a Democratic Congress, um, this is the kind of protection you can expect for the internet. Yeah, and and you know ultimately what we're trying to do is undo Ajit Pai's uh, terrible decision on net neutrality as head of the FCC. So, um, and you know since we talked about it in our previous segment with uh, Chris and Summer, let's discuss the Medicare for All bill that was introduced by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. So far, the only Washington Democrat to support it is Adam Smith. Um, and I asked our panelists, so I'll ask you uh, to give us your take on this bill. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I, I would have been, uh, I will be interested to hear uh, what, what your panel discussion was. Um, and I um, struggle, I guess, or I'd listen, this is a really difficult question and, and one that's hard for me to come up with a good answer. Um, but, but I kind of fall down on it this way. Um, so th there are certainly good arguments that can be made in favor of and against Medicare for all, certainly um, here in Washington State. Um, I don't think that uh, Congresswoman Sh uh, Schreier is totally sold on the concept of Medicare for All. I think her health care plan is, is uh, somewhat different. Um, and, and I think this is an area where reasonable men and women can disagree. But I think asking for our representatives to um, co-sponsor um, the Medicare for All Act and to uh, support bringing it to a House floor does two things. Number one, um, this is one of the things that uh, Indivisible National has asked Indivisible groups to do. Right. So I'm generally almost always in favor of, of doing what uh, Indivisible National asks for. I figure if, if I don't know exactly what to do, but they're asking for it, then, then that's a good place for me to start. <clears throat> and then the other thing this does is... Um, your listeners may have heard the phrase shifting the Overton window, right. meaning um, kind of like uh, um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez started talking about 70% uh, marginal tax rates and all of a sudden people were talking about taxing the wealthy as they hadn't talked about it before. I think talking about the pros and cons of Medicare for all and wrestling with whether this is or is not uh, a bill that we should um, passed to the president for approval, really gets all those issues out on the floor, gives it a fair hearing, um, a fair airing, and allows us to come down on a final uh, policy before the 2020 election of what do we want to do if health care is a human right, how do we provide that health care to everybody? Medicare for all is certainly one way to do it. Um, and let's put that bill out on the table, see if it gets enough votes or not. And if it doesn't, because there are some problems with it, well, let's flesh those out and then and then figure out a way to make that bill better. Got it. Yeah. But, you know, I think the uh, the creator of the Overton window uh, probably wishes at this point that he were working on a royalty basis every time he yes, gets uh, yes. he gets mentioned. Um, so, yeah. So ultimately, the call is to uh, to ask our Democratic members of Congress to co-sponsor it so that it can be brought to the floor. And they, of course, at this point are Schreier, Del Bene, Kilmer, Heck and Larson. So if any of those people are your representative, uh, you know what to do. Get after it. All right, Stephen. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, looking forward to it. Thanks, Stefan. Bye. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you could and you would not mind, please head over to iTunes and rate the show. That would be so awesome. It really, really helps. As always, for links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org, and I would love it if you would subscribe while you were there. Also, please keep the emails coming. The address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Igor Volsky. Special thanks to Beverly Rivero. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>